Hello, everyone. Welcome. This is Like Trees Walking. This is episode number 222. Yes. I don't think we ever introduce our episode numbers. Oh, no, we should. And we should. Yeah. So 222, this is season two of our, <laughs> which is utterly arbitrary. Uh, it's a it's a TV phenomenon. It means the second season, the twenty second episode. Yes. Yeah. 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 And typical uh, season lengths, Mike. Could you enlighten the people on that? Well, you would you know get an initial twenty four, and then you may get a back end eight or something like that, tagging along with it. Depends on how what the format was, and obviously the network and whatnot. Anyway, there's <laughs> a lot of it's a, it's a lot of episode thirty. Like you could have thirty two episodes in a season. You could, you could, it's especially so in the episodes. in the cable arena, where there is no, you're not debuting right. a show in the, you know, it's not summer replacements and stuff like that. It's just running all the time. I love summer replacements. <laughs> What's your favorite? Uh, uh, this is a spinoff of uh, it's it's a spinoff of the Bachelor franchise, but Bachelor in Paradise. It's a great because it, it, it it replaced what. Uh, well, it just I don't know what it replaced, but you know, because the Bassler show would be on, and then you do in Paradise. It's a it's an iteration of the show where it's just two teams of guys and girls. Like like it makes it 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 makes what is a ostensibly a love show a true game show. It, it and it's like I feel like it captures more the essence of the show than the actual show itself. Like just a skeezy booze fueled, <laughs> you know hot tub fest like it's just so it's such a disgusting game show it's wonderful i'm shocked that you like it but speaking of shows what is this show and who are we and what are we going to do today Um, i'm going to toss it over to you today let's see you do the hosting happily uh this is the this is like trees walking um it is a podcast and it's the show where we talk about the big questions the big topics um things from the realm of theology and philosophy and 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 the culture these are the big big perennial and pressing questions that are always around us uh we do it from a a christian perspective a an, an unashamedly unabashedly avowedly distinctively christian perspective but we know that everyone listening to us doesn't agree with us but we just want to make you think we want to make you go hmm Hmm. we know everyone does not agree with us but i would like to point out we wish you would i mean come on what are you doing but uh it makes us sad that you don't i'm joking of course we welcome all people to give us a piece of their mind as well correct i (laughs) I look. You looked doubtful for a second there. <laughs> yes, Where's he going just, with just, this? Just email us at peace of my mind at liketreeswalkingpod.com. Uh, yeah, I looked at you, and you didn't yes and me with your eyes. I'm always pleading with you. Am, am I on the right track? Have you ever been speaking? And you, I used to do this when I was when I was a kid. I would raise my hand in class and speak, and I would wonder that if what I just said was like. A dog barking was just utter gibberish, <laughs> where you would sort of doubt, like, did I just Is there any communication? <laughs> what I really wanted to say, and I, I confess, I still sometimes I, I think uh, in uh, Dave and I are in a reading group. We read the works of G.K. Chesterton, and sometimes when I finish reading a paragraph of Chesterton out loud to the others, I wonder, did did that 
make any sense? Did I read the actual words that are on the page or did I just kind of go, it's, it's very sometimes disorienting where you can't, Mike, do you know what I'm talking about? I I, I get the feeling when you're, when you're, that it's a very interesting phenomenon. However, as a, you know, as an outsider, as someone, not you, when you're reading, you're a great reader. My, my only thought when you finish reading is why didn't he take an extra paragraph? And I'm not saying that to blow smoke. You're a great reader. I, so I'm always actually mad that you don't take more of the reading. It's, 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 it's not humble. It's kind of you to say. You it's are also a, a good reader. Thank you. It's not humble when you don't read. You should read more. Like, just take it. Like, whatever you're feeling, just that. Just Stretch an, it a little more. Just, just take the, another para. I'm pleading on behalf of the group, just an extra paragraph. I'm going to do that. Yeah, you, we, hear, you heard it here. Good, wonderful. So right. <laughs> you won't be there to hear it, but uh, well, some of the no, we do have some 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 listeners yeah, will. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah some and will be. You're welcome to join, and we love, <laughs> and we we love you all. Okay, uh, so, what are we doing today? We have a big topic. Large. This is probably um, boy. In I mean, all of them are large. We promised that, but th- this one is is big, big, big. Um, and we'll get to that in a second. And then uh, a little later on, this is going to be a little past time for this topic, but I am going to go into the subject of tennis grunting. The The fact that I have to use the word grunting even makes me cringe, <laughs> but it's a big issue. It's uh, recently come up again with, uh, and, and again, this is a past the time of, it's currently in the middle of the U.S. Open right now. Or I mean, we're, we're yeah, approaching I mean, the uh, final right yeah, now. Yeah, the, the end is nigh. So, um, and Maria Sharapova, one of the classic grunters of all time, is out of the tournament. However, she left, she left a big mark on it, and uh, we'll talk about that. It, it, it rises to the level of a moral dilemma, so we'll talk about that later. It's important to talk about. But let's get to the big topic, Pastor. Okay. What in the devil, man? The devil's in the detail. We'll call <laughs> that episode something like that. No, no, no. So this is just something that comes up. Um, all the time, you know, I'm a, I'm a pastor. So one of the things that I get up and do each and every week is I deliver a sermon. So I preach uh, based on some, uh, you know, passage or excerpt of, uh, of Scripture, of the Bible. And so this past week, I was preaching on Paul's letter to the Ephesians. It's at the end. It's this famous passage. If you know anything about it, it's putting on the whole armor of God. And as often happens when you're reading the Bible, especially, I mean, really, especially uh, when you're reading the New Testament, uh, you know, it, it, Paul says, you know, put it on so you can stand against the schemes of the devil. So, and he says, and goes on to say, you know, our battle is not against flesh and blood, but it's this sort of spiritual, supernatural battle. And and you read that in a 21st century American, you know, Western post-Enlightenment context, and people go like, uh, yeah, the devil, <laughs> like, re- really? You know, yeah. and, and so we think of the devil and spirits, that stuff belongs to sort of the... the spooky world, um, the world of, uh, you know, superstition, and um, we are beyond that. So, you know, most people, I think you can, like, if you argue enough, you can sort of probably get them on board with, yeah, like, they're, the devil is a, okay, it's a, like a personification of evil, or yeah, there's evil in the world, really bad things, so we can put a label, like, diabolical on it, but in terms of some 
spiritual agent, whatever that, you know, almost doesn't even yeah. make sense to people. In terms of some sort of spiritual agency that is invisible and behind people and events and influencing them, yeah, yeah. It belongs in the past with those old maps that just ended and said, here there be dragons or what have you. It's just, they just <laughs> yeah. didn't know what was going on, so they just labeled it as such. And that's what, that's what Paul was doing, right? Yes. That's what people would say, that he, well, he didn't have a term for it, it's... Maybe it's people's addictions, or maybe it's uh, their psychological faults, or yeah. they they weren't uh, hugged as a child and they act out, and that's their devil, right? Yeah, that's yeah. kind of how it's explained away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Here, <laughs> that's a good way to put it. The the here be dragons <laughs> yes. uh, part of the business. We, just this is a I love our asides. This is talking about this made me think of this, but like that this sort of that a uh, pure lo- you know logical rational person you know couldn't believe in this kind of you know garbage or you know a superstition. R- what I found really interesting, I just learned this was that uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, mm-hmm. famous of course as the author of author of Sherlock Holmes, the creator of the character Sherlock Holmes, and he wrote the Sherlock Holmes books. And when we think of Sherlock Holmes, he's like the consummate oh, yes. rationalist, right? Yeah. You know, he is always, uh, he, he, he's, you know, for those of us maybe not of, uh, who aren't as steeped in classic uh, English literature, sort of like the Scooby-Doo phenomenon back in the day, right? That, that, <laughs> yes. that there's spooky things happening, but there's always a rational explanation yes. underlying them. It's, yeah. it's yep. the same thing, right? Yep. But... Uh, <laughs> Sir Arthur Conan does go, oh, well, he, you know, he must identify himself with the Sherlock character. Pure rationalism. Yep. Yeah. But he ended up, in his life, he was like a really devoted spiritualist, right? Yes. Like, he was all into these seances and communing with the dead. Yeah. Yeah. And this was big in, in, would it be Victorian? England or? Well, he was, yeah, it, it would have been still Victorian. He was sort of the end of it, and he survived into the 20th century, I believe. Yeah. Um, because he was, he knew uh, Harry Houdini, who uh, the second half of Harry Houdini's career involved debunking the huge craze of uh, seances and spiritualism and mediums, as they were called. Mm. And, and that led him to... Uh, to start up a correspondence with Sir Arthur Conan Doyle and to say, dude, you're, you're barking up the wrong tree. And then the irony of it was that uh, Houdini told his wife before he died, hold a seance every year because I'm going to come back. So <laughs> what the heck? Yeah, and she did. She, on his, on his, uh, the anniversary of his death, I, I believe, which was Halloween, she would hold a, a seance to try to talk to him. So... Yeah, they both fell into the trap despite uh yeah. This having, is so having yeah, this, nothing to do with it in their personal lives or in you know in their their uh outlook. Yeah, so this yeah, so uh, <laughs> apropos of nothing, I just thought that was really 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 interesting. But it, it sort of to me gives lie to this notion that oh, they, you know, super rational people will get, you know, beyond this right. uh, almost innate quest to uh go into the, that there is the there be dragons realm and we want to know so much about it you know the sort of world beyond death and so uh, but i was when i was preparing for the sermon i read again and it was really helped by um this book by we bring him up a lot because he's so great 
uh, C.S. Lewis. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and, and so he wrote this wonderful book called The Screwtape Letters. And it's, it's, I mean, cracking. It's just so, so funny. He tried to kind of recapture the magic. Um, he wrote like a like a like a Sunday Times article, like Uncle Screwtape gives a lecture. <laughs> yeah, or something. It's yeah. just not as it's nowhere near as good, I don't think, as the original uh, letters. But these letters he wrote there, I think I don't know, you know, thirty letters or something like that. that this fictional correspondent between a senior tempter demon um, and uh, and uh, Screwtape and his you know greenhorn fresh tempter devil uh, uh, wormwood. wormwood. Yeah. yeah. And so Lewis wrote this, and he and it was what's so interesting to me about it is like when he wrote this. So he wrote it at you know it's the for the Second World War is raging, you know the Battle of Britain, like they're being bomb, you know bombs are falling from the sky, like Hitler has conquered Europe. I just go yeah. like I sort of think like what a hell of a time to be like writing yeah. <laughs> writing this, and it makes and it but it makes a lot of sense because you know we've been kind of uh, maybe anesthetized against this sort of evil, but I mean every single day there's this he looks out and there's this existential threat and it's not clear that it's going to be defeated at all. This great evil has swept across Europe and the world. And it's, you know, the middle of 1941 when he's writing this, it's, it's, it's not clear at all that good is going to triumph over evil. Right. 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 And so he writes this and and he says, this is so helpful. I think when we're thinking about this question, it's sort of like, well, the devil, like really, he says this in, in his, in the preface to the work. It's so helpful. He says, There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. (laughs) Perfect. Absolutely. And then um, in, in one of the letters uh, where, where Uncle Screwtape is addressing Wormwood, he, he takes on this question further again of, is it better if for the devil's purposes is if human beings believe in him or not? And so this is, uh, this is Uncle Screwtape writing to Wormwood. He says, I wonder you should ask me whether it is essential to keep the patient in ignorance of your own existence. That question, at least for the present phase of the struggle, has been answered by the high command. So this is coming straight from Hell's headquarters. Hell. Our policy for the moment is to conceal ourselves. Of course, this has not always been so. We are really faced with a cruel dilemma. When the humans disbelieve in our existence, we lose all the pleasing results of direct terrorism, and we make no magicians. On the other hand, when they believe in us, we cannot make them materialists and skeptics, at least not yet. I have great hopes that we shall learn in due time how to emotionalize and mythologize their science to such an extent that what is, in effect, a belief in us though not under that name, will creep in while the human mind remains closed to belief in the enemy, the enemy being God. The life force or worship of sex and some aspects of psychoanalysis may here prove useful. If once we can produce our perfect work, the materialist magician, the man not using but veritably worshiping what he vaguely calls forces while denying the existence of spirits, then the end of the war will be in sight. But in the meantime, we must obey our orders. I do not think you will have much difficulty in keeping the patient in the dark. The fact that devils are predominantly comic figures in the modern imagination will help you. If any faint suspicion of your existence begins to arise in his mind, suggest to him a picture of something in red tights and persuade him since he cannot believe in that it is an old textbook method of confusing them. He therefore cannot believe in you. <laughs> oh, very nice. A delightful reading. I thought I would add on to it. Oh, do I found this while you were reading. It just happened to be sitting on our shelves. This is not planned. He, uh, he said in his book, uh, Mere Christianity, uh, talking about the devil again, 
He says, I know someone will ask me, do you really mean at the to- at this time of day to reintroduce our old friend, the devil, hoofs and horns and all? Well, what time of day has to do with it, I do not know, but I am not particular about the hoofs and horns. But in other respect, my answer is yes, I do. I do not claim to know anything about his personal appearance. If anybody really wants to know him better, I would say to that person, don't worry. If you really want to, you will. Whether you like it when you do is another question. <laughs> so good. So good. So, you know, that uh, belief in, in the devil, on one hand, it seems sort of, you know, embarrassing and silly and yeah. superstitious. But I think when we have the perspective that Paul offers us, that there is more to this life, right? If, if, if one is open to the religious questions of life, the spiritual dimensions of life, there is, uh, in, in the, as, the old, as the old Transformers um, thing said, more than meets the eye, right? If there is, I used, as a kid, I thought for a long time, confession, I thought it, he was saying, robots in disguise. I, well, that's the other one, isn't it? Is it robots in disguise and more than meets the eye? Are they both there? I don't know. I, I believe robots in disguise is one of them. But isn't it more than meets, isn't more than meets the eye there? That I can't, I can either confirm nor deny which one I'm is not a huge good? transformers fan as you might have guessed you know they do those new films are good <laughs> oh sure michael bay <laughs> but anyways let's say that they do say more than me yeah, yeah right, right. That, that there is if there is more to this life than the particles the particles nothing but the particles right if there's an extra dimension then it then it opens us up to the notion of you know belief in a spiritual realm uh god which you know god is is a yeah, part of that, right. but that also a malevolent, malevolent forces opposed to him. You know, don't just exist in the realm of flesh and blood, but also in this spiritual realm as well. It makes yeah, sense to think I, that. I've always found it strange, and I find this among people who claim to be believers in a force or a whatever, whatever their conception of of God is. Generally, not among the more sort of orthodox people. Is yeah, I can believe in that, but. You know this other malarkey, like the the virgin birth or something. It's like, well, wait, well, wait a minute. You just confessed belief in a spirit who created the universe. It's like, why won't you take the extra step to believe in the things that he and his son <laughs> believed in, which is devils? Uh, they always close it off there, though. Like, nah, that that's just a bridge too far, and uh, that doesn't make any logical sense to me. No, it's it's and and especially if we. Look at Jesus as one who has, you know, the true perspective on life and the world. Uh, this is a very—this is—I've said it before, we'll say it again. This is this this battle not against flesh and blood, but against these spiritual, you know, dark cosmic forces who are opposed to God's purposes. This is, like, happening all the time, you know? Yeah. And so that should tell us something, you know, give us pause at least. You could say, well, it's just the product of— you know, he was a man, a product of his time, first century. So, belief in this sort of thing was there. Well, how, how could he not help it? But you say this isn't just a you know a, 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 an artifact of when he lived, but actually essential to him and his message and his ministry. Then it's a lot more difficult to just sort of flipply dis yeah toss off. And as Lewis says, it, and I and I share this perspective, it, it doesn't matter whether you believe in it or not. It's happening. And so yeah. to be armed and prepared against it, uh, it's better to accept the reality that it's going on and, and, and do what you can to know uh, what he's going to try to do to you to direct you away from God and towards himself. And so, uh, and Lewis says there's two ways you can do it. One, have you not believed, be a pure materialist, or be 
so obsessed with it that you're like an Arthur Conan Doyle or a Harry Houdini, mm-hmm. right? That it becomes this almost mad. So what do you think Mike Lewis is talking about when he talks about the magician? What, is, what does that mean to him? Or when you read him talking about the magician, he talks about that a lot. I think he's pretty much talking about the, the person who uh, accepts the spiritual world, denies its power, to, to uh, steal a quote there, mm-hmm. to, uh, <laughs> where they're, they're on board for like, oh yeah, I've... I've met dark forces i've met and they mix them all together and have no structure to actually interpret that in other words they don't understand where it comes from they uh you know someone who would believe someone like uh arthur conan doyle or houdini who's like there's something going on out there that we don't know about i believe that but uh makes you know doesn't attribute it to the author of it it's like uh, it's like if you were just went like for the ghost hunters tv show or something like that you know like there's something extremely titillating about them you know sitting around and with their you know night vision cameras and you hear the oh yeah god i just hit a, i just wow flipped a soda I just off flipped the table a soda. you know but you're like that oh, was a spirit that was an actual seance i hear it and ah you know like that 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 that, that it's titillating to us because as human beings we're like oh yeah there is something more and we, we yeah. want that proof of it um, and that kind of show offers it, but that's sort of the magician take that that these spiritual these powers or forces, as he says, they exist, but we don't have any rubric through which to yeah. interpret them, and and we even try to sort of use them for our own purposes or something like that. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and which you know, in the case of it's sort of ironic in the case of Houdini, he was a magician and he denied that. There's a famous case of him. There's a super famous spiritualist named, uh, I forget, Madam something, I don't know. And he, uh, she agreed to meet with him uh, and let him try to debunk her powers. Like, she's like, I'm the real deal. You yeah. can just come in and come to the seance. And so he did, and uh, he famously spent like a week there and couldn't figure out her secrets. And, and so... It, it, he in the end he finally like he had an assistant come in and like turn the lights on in the middle of it or something and exposed some aspect of it but for a while he was very frustrated like she's better than I am she's too good at her trickery so this is this is fascinating and the material magician that he's talking about is this person who somehow accepts sort of the worst aspects of of both of those things right which is that don't believe in God but believe in these you know these that you basically almost turn you it's sort of i would the religion of science almost yeah you know the exaltation tellers magicians you know who claim to have actual power yeah the materialist magician so so what do we do about the where do we fit the devil then into the modern world what do we rational uh people how do what do we make of it I, I would say that, and this is again where screw tape is so helpful because it's talking about tempting this person, but it's so boring. Like the, the way the it's it, the writing is not boring, but the sort of schemes of uh, of this tempter is always using aspects of everyday life in order to direct this person, the patient they call them, mm-hmm. uh, towards the devil. So away from God and towards the devil. So uh, being aware and I think accepting the the reality of. Um, these other forces or powers that are trying to turn you away from God. It's not some spooky show where, you know, devils are going to come haunting you or anything like that, but it's just how, how, um, how are things working in your life to turn you away from God? Yeah. You know, that's really the question to ask. So, 
um, what in your personality, you know, sort of your pride, snobbishness, um, what, or, you know, your relationships with other people, uh, your job, the company you keep, all of these things, just asking, how are these a vulnerability for what I, for ways that could lead me away from, um, loving and serving and, and, and following the Lord, you know, that's those. So I'd say as a modern person, it's not sort of figuring it out or trying to, trying to understand exactly, you know, the spiritual realm. It's just saying that these are all going to be expressed in vulnerabilities in my life to lead me away from God. There's a famous one that my wife and I always point out to each other that we're sort of aware of our own faults in this area. Uh, He talks about in the book about a woman who just wants her cup of tea. She just, all I want is just a simple cup of tea done exactly how I want it. And basically talking about how she would move heaven or hell to get just this simple cup of tea. And it seems so, is it too much to ask that I just get everything exactly as I want? And uh, that's kind of, uh, you know, writ large on all of us that we want what we want, damn it. Yep. And, and the way we want it and how this, yeah, how, how these really simple things were, you know, your bad relationships that, that, that you have in your life and, and how, how all of these things are a way of turning us back in on ourselves and turning us away from God. And so, yeah, accepting that those are not just innocent little things, but there's actually, a, you know, in the day-to-day quotidian struggles of life and faith, there's a, there's a war going on and a battle going on um, for our souls. And so it's not much sexier than that, but, but that, there's real, really something going on. Yeah. And I think uh, I would like to revisit this topic at another time, just talk about, like, the theology of the devil, like the, you know, how, how that works, like, through the, through the Bible. Yeah. Um, it's it's going to be more exciting than that sounds, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Not to be, uh, you know, Paul warns us off of that, to be too obsessed with thinking about these things, but it's interesting to, you know, how does it actually all work? How does it, uh, where we meet these spiritual forces... How do they work, and how do they think? So this think is a, sort of a fascinating. Well, I'll, I'll, this is my closing thought, and uh, so Martin Luther, we're five hundred five hundredth anniversary coming up, October thirty first of the uh, of the Protestant Reformation, the beginning when mm-hmm. Luther nails his famous ninety five theses to the Wittenberg Castle Church door, and so Luther was always talking about the devil, like always talking about this. One of the strike, you know, we think of Luther as sort of the founder of modernity. Um, but uh, he's always talking about the devil, and one of his best ways he says of you know, and 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 he always kind of felt under attack. Um, and I mean, if you look at his life uh, and and the things that he faced, the you know very real reality of death he often faced. That you can understand why he would yeah. feel under attack. But he said this best way to drive off the devil. One of the things he said was with a good fart. <laughs> wow, <laughs> that's what he would. That's what he would say. So he would sort of, sort of this very vulgar way. And, and I, I've always that was I sort did of not expect that. Yes, I, that's I what Luther. That. That's what Luther, um, belching, farting, bodily, you know, bo- bodily functions. I know he was. He was into that. He was, <laughs> his his works are sort of peppered with that. Are they not? They are. Yeah, absolutely. He so, was a man of his time. And, People and were closer to those things back then. And of all times, Mike, of all times. No, I mean in that regard, I'm saying. What, of being scatological? Yes, that was a time to be scatological. Well, it, maybe it's time to be scatological again, Mike. <laughs> right. It'll still be a very different show from here on out then, folks. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be, we will go true morning show, like where yes. it's like 
<laughs> yeah, I got to like, get a soundboard yeah, filled with yeah. those. Yeah, I'll we'll get, get that. the soundboard. Thank yep. you. Yep, we'll do. All right, from the profound to the <laughs> to that, even more profound, <laughs> even more profound. We're gonna take a break and then we'll be back on Lake Trees Walking. If you have enjoyed the high-minded conversation that you just heard here on this delightful podcast, Like Trees Walking, you could do us some serious solids. Uh, one of them, go to wherever this fine podcast is found, however you procure it yourself. And if you could subscribe to it, that would be really helpful. And then if you could rate it and review it or review it and rate it in whatever order you choose, that would also help people find it. So um, we keep slowly and continually adding to that. And, and it's really helpful. It, it helps other people as they're looking at it to know like, hey, if there's more reviews by it, it's like, oh, this might be something worth checking out. So it, it, it's the little thing that you can do to help us uh, spread the good word about this podcast. You can, of course, uh, like our page on Facebook, or uh, you can go to lighttreeswalkingpod.com and find out more information there. And as always, you can follow the inimitable um, at Michael J. Nelson on Twitter or at David underscore Berge. Um, uh, yeah, we occasionally post um, our profound thoughts there. So uh, we really appreciate uh, the show, the feedback, uh, the support. Um, you know, we're almost done here with our, our second season and we are looking forward to doing so much more. So let's get back to the show and some serious conversation. We're moving from the scatological to grunting. Okay, we are back. That was some fittingly spooky music there. It was almost, yeah, it was like, a, it was like an off-brand Stranger Things yeah, uh, yes. <laughs> sound. It put, uh, puts one in the mood. Season, season two coming soon. To you a fan? I did, I, liked, I did like the first season. As with many of these things, like the more they reveal of the monster and thing, like the less scary it gets to me. Um, yeah, exactly. But I thought it was... I thought it was like, yeah, when it's just like the lights lighting up and like the kind of Ouija board like spelling, that stuff is like creepy and, and scary. So I, I was a fan of season one for sure. You know what scared me? What? All the pandering to you nerds. That's what scared me. <laughs> <laughs> Man, I'm a child of the 80s. It was, I, I appreciate that. I was terrified by that. Um, all right. So we talked in the first half of this uh, podcast about the devil. Yep. Um, is your sermon on that available online? Of course it is. Can we link to online. that? We could link to the sermon. So we'll put yeah. a link to the, uh, to the SoundCloud, uh, of the sermon. So I touch on, it's not like that's kind of the first piece of it or whatever is, is what I shared today. But yeah, I think I myself do think the whole thing is worth listening to. So yeah, I'll put a link to, uh, to the sermon on the, uh, on, on the old, I'll put it in the, on iTunes, I know I can put it. I can put it in like the metadata or whatever. Yeah, it'll be there. there. You go. It'll all be yeah. there. I was there. I saw it live, man. Live I and witnessed never. it. Yeah, I was there. I had uh, Bridget on my shoulders, and we were like, we had the lighter out. It was <laughs> a good sermon. You can hear Mike going, "Yeah, preach it." No, there's no. This is a very white <laughs> congregation, so there's no interaction. Although occasionally, yeah, I get some feedback. You get some some shouts. Oh yeah, yeah. I'm gonna start doing it more. I don't do it enough. I'm very. <laughs> no. I'm very. Scandinavian in that I'm I'm not actually Scandinavian, but in that regard, you've been very, socialized I've in been that socialized. way. Uh, speaking of 
loud noises and yes, feedback and shrieking. Funny you should mention that. We mm. have what I think is a moral dilemma. And it comes up because, again, I think we mentioned this is um, the season of the U.S. Open. That would be the final major of 2017. Flushing Meadows, New York. Lovely this time of year. It is. Have you been to the uh, U.S. Open? I've never ever? been to the U.S. Open. I was at it years ago, and it was fantastic. It really was a, a I li- I cool... Gotten, I lived I, close. I lived in New Jersey for a few years. Oh, yeah. And a but lot of people I knew went to it. It's still tough to... It's like a tough ticket, and... It's pretty crowded, but, but just to be, you know, you can get get it. You can get to some like lesser matches or whatever. Yeah, yeah, you can wander around. Um, my wife and I were just at the uh, Western and Southern Open. Who won in Cincinnati? Uh, we did not see the final because we had other things. We had to skedaddle before that, but we saw the uh, matches in the final week. So we did see Dominic Team. We saw David Ferrer. We saw. Muguruza, oh. the uh, c- current number one in the world, just became number one. How was the How was the tennis? It was fantastic. Yeah, I was in the first match. This is what you do. This is what we wanted to do. Instead of going to the U.S. Open, we go to this one, which isn't not as hot a ticket. Although everybody comes to it, like it, you know, it's the warm up for, and it's a, a, a thousand level series. So it's a there's a lot of points there for the players. So everybody comes to it, but it's not. You know, it's a little bit easier to go to Cincinnati than it is to Flushing Meadows, New York. So we went to that, and I just bought the open tickets like a long time ago. And so they're basically the same price no matter what you do. And I got a, a box seat on the court for the first one, uh, which uh, was so I was like four feet away from the players as they sat down on the changeovers and stuff. So I could have been like giving them advice, like, yeah. hey, hey uh, team, you need to come over the top a little more on that backhand. You're kind of flattening it out. Is that where the family sits in the long. box or no? Are they like even closer? Uh, they didn't have them there. I didn't, I didn't see his. They weren't like, there wasn't like the Sven Gali, like. They were the, probably there somewhere, but okay. I didn't, I, I don't know where they were, but it wasn't that full. And so anyway, that's my long winded, uh, that's the ad for the Western and Southern Open. But a problem comes up in tennis. This was never an issue until the 90s with a player named Monica Sellis. Do you remember her? Of course. uh, The great Monica Sellis. uh, Great player. uh, I was uh, young when she came up, but I was in, I I, I probably watched more tennis then than than at any point in my life. I didn't have much going on. And so I watched a lot of tennis. Monica, and of course, she famously, infamously was stabbed. Yes. You know, by someone jumping out of like a box type seat. So. Uh, yeah, so I remember Monica, early 90s, great player, became a naturalized American citizen later in her life, so she, I think, I played believe, for us in the Olympics, right? I believe she was two hands on both sides, yes. which is a rarity. Yes. I don't think anybody does that anymore. Um, but she was perhaps most famous for introducing the grunt to uh, to tennis. And uh, let me give you an example of that right now, because grunt isn't, I mean, that's the word everyone uses. Like, oh, so when they hit the tennis ball, they go, mm. Yeah, yeah. You, <clears throat> you Like effort. <clears throat> yeah, you wish, buddy. Here it is. All right, let me bring up the sound here. I hope this doesn't blow, blow us out. <laughs> careful, Get ready. Careful, yeah. folks. This is just a sampling. This is not Cellus. Azarenka, Wozniacki, uh, Serena Williams, and can't see the other player. Sharapova. 
That one is... The other one's just hitting it. <laughs> so, I don't think I need to go on. I think you get the idea. It's not much of a... It's more of a scream. It is a scream. And Sharapova is... Uh, famously screams no matter what kind of effort she's putting into the shot. So a delicate drop shot. <laughs> ah, you know, I can't, I can't do it. I blow out our microphone and our sound system. She screams as though she's a Victorian woman who saw a mouse on the floor. I mean, it's, it is a full-throated scream, high-pitched, and while she's hitting the shot. So... So potato, potato. Some people scream. Some people don't scream. My God, why is this a moral? Why does this crime? rise yeah. to the level of a moral dilemma? Well, obviously, there's the the. It's distracting. I believe Martina Navratilova played Celis back in the day and said she went to the chair and said because this is, had never happened before. She's saying, "What is going on?" And she asked the chair umpire to please address this. And so they. She did. Celis ended up winning the match, and Navratilova kind of looked like a jerk um, because Celis then, in her next match, was embarrassed and didn't make any sounds at all. And did she lose? And she lost her match. And so there was sort of like a weird... It's like her power. It's like Samson's hair or something <laughs> yeah. like that. Uh, so obviously there's the distraction, but there's another element to it, and that is they're screaming while they're hitting the shot, right? Mm-hmm. Well... If you play tennis, and you do, I know. At a very high level. We have not played yet. I play a lot of tennis. We should play. Uh, the hitting of the strings and the sound they make is is a large part of how you know, in addition to, you know, obviously the shape of the shot, the arm movement, you can tell whether or not it's going to be a slice or, a, or you know, top spin or whether it's going to be flat or, you know, you can discern all these things. But one of the big things is the sound off the rackets. And so if you are disguising the sound, which had previously in all generations of tennis been available to hear for every player, are you then cheating? Are you taking away an element that the the other player can use and should be able to use to uh, to play you. So it's a it's a question of fair play. Yeah, and yeah. and sports and uh, sportsmanship. Yeah, uh, I, I guess we'll have to leave that to that. So far, it seems as though the tennis experts, the tennis the people, the tennis community has not. Uh, it's still happening. The grunting is happening as much as ever, right? Yes, it is. And uh, and I looked this up yesterday in prep for this. Yeah. Uh, I heard a statement from one of the the heads of the, uh, I believe it's the WTA is the one, the Women's Tennis Association. Uh, the ATP is the other one. The WTA head, at least this was maybe a couple of years ago, said, oh, it's a big problem. Like, we lose viewership. People constantly complain about it. People hate it. Uh, I was playing tennis with a guy the other day who said, oh, the Sharapova match, I'm going to watch that. Of course, I'm turning the sound down. You know, it's it's like, and some people will just say, I can't watch her. And so it's a huge deal. And, and you know what they're going to do to address it? What, Is like there, turn the mics down? They're taking a very passive approach. What they said, what, this was in the statement by the WTA person, we're going to... Uh, train and coach up and coming players not to do ah, it. so it's like <laughs> so, the next gen so so yeah you'll have to endure this for quite some time but hopefully it'll taper off and we won't have this anymore but i i do think it rises to the level of you know nearly cheating okay uh, so because you you don't why did every tennis player in all of history 
why were they able to play the game without doing it? And then suddenly one person does it and it switches on like a, it's just a floodgate. It was like uh, Michael Jordan when he, he would like stick out his tongue, you know, when he was playing basketball and all these people started, you know, like. Oh, and that became a thing. Yeah, I mean, not to the same degree as tennis grunting, by by no means uh, with tennis grunting. But, it, you know, it, like people cop the great ones, people copy because they think that somehow, you know, even if something as silly as sticking out your tongue or grunting, that that must be what gives an edge. And maybe it's not the, maybe Monica Sells would say, well, I do it because, like, it's this incredible sense of release and of power and of engagement with the shot, you know, and then, and she doesn't even realize secondarily it's having this actually you know positive effect giving her that slight and i mean these are the best players in the world so any marginal advantage you know uh you need whatever marginal advantage you can get right so it just gives her that tiny little advantage well let's do a thought experiment what if instead of just grunting because some some people do sort of a vocalization along with it like they shape their grunting into something other than just a scream uh there's i forget her name there's a, a italian woman who shapes it into three syllables ooh ah e or something like that you know so what if you were uh, just started uh, yelling out a word just the uh, maybe the opposing player's name you know how people used to taunt uh, Daryl Strawberry by just getting a chant going where they'd all go Daryl I don't Darryl. know that but <laughs> it's a famous it started and it plagued him for his entire career uh, and really got inside of his head. But what if you just did that? You just started shrieking out the other guy's name. Like, I'm not being any louder than the other people. Well, why is that a problem? Would that be a, an issue? I mean... It, it seems untoward, at least, right? It does, if, yeah, because <laughs> it's not just a sound. Then it's personal, Mike. Well... But the, the grunt is pretty... You're screaming at me from across the net. Screaming at the ball, the effort. The name is like a... It's an extra level. Well, I didn't mean to shape it in a name. It just sounds that way. <laughs> I change it every time, and sometimes it sounds like the guy across the net. Is there, is, so is this, this is the other question that I had for you. So there's obviously grunting aplenty in the women's game. It uh, is. What about the men's game? There is a bit of it. I think uh, it does. it's not nearly as prevalent, and it tends to take a slightly different form. This is just my, I don't know, off the cuff. You've listened, you've watched a lot of tennis. So I have. Uh, Andy Murray does a form of grunting where he it's not while he's hitting the ball it's when he sees the ball coming off the strings of the other person ah. he, he almost does like a oh like i identified that as a tough shot i'm gonna have to run to get so he'll do a oh like oh no while it's Can't. coming towards him yeah so it's not during a shot or anything and it's not during his shot it's kind of well the ball is in the air on the way over the net so is that poor sportsmanship to you uh, I haven't thought a lot about it. I, I don't like it, um, but to me, it doesn't quite rise to the level of a distraction. I, I wish I had the example here. Another yeah. one would be Nadal. He does sometimes grunt during it, and uh, I would say the same thing to him. Stop doing Did it. Did Agassi grunt? No, I don't think so. Okay, he wasn't like a, so. uh, like a, uh, sort of a... No, not even McEnroe. He didn't even have to, to grunt. He did all of his grunting... Uh, it was very pointed grunt. But you could say that, like, yeah, it would obviously be very poor sportsmanship if just when the other person was about to hit the ball, you just started yelling, booga, 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 you know what Yeah, I mean? exactly. Like, you just started, like, screaming at this person like a crazed maniac. Yeah, we used to, when I was in a, uh, uh, I became old when I was young. When I was in high school, I was in a bowling league, um, 
to, in order to appear as though I were a middle-aged man. <laughs> and we would actually play middle-aged men. It was just fun. Uh, but we would yell to each other while we were, while you were about to, to uh, roll the ball. It was, always, it was just somehow it just became accepted that you could do that and you had to just endure the taunts that other people did. Jeez. Yeah, like, there's a squirrel in the lane. You know, just, what? What did you say? Oh, nothing. You know, so that just started to be a thing. But that was accepted. That was the coin of the realm. Then it's fine. Yeah. Well, so, Mike, a very important dilemma. Um, wonderful audio to listen to. Uh, <laughs> thank you. Should we go out on that? Just yeah. 15 minutes of, uh, of grunting? Yeah. All right. Well, uh, why don't you wrap up the show and I'll, I'll pull out the, uh, the audio and we can leave with the delightful sounds of women tennis grunting. <laughs> So, well, to, to put a bow on the show, we talked about uh, the devil, something that we're uncomfortable believing, but uh, if we're, uncomfortable, if you don't believe the devil exists, uh, just listen to a little tennis grunting and uh, your mind is sure to be changed. But know that there is a, a struggle going on um, uh, for our very souls and this is not a surprise. And uh, so we commend to you. Uh, uh, C.S. Lewis on this. We think it, it, it's a really helpful perspective. Um, Mike brought up tennis grunting, and I, the more I hear it, the more I do think it is a problem. Uh, it's throwing me off my game right at this exact moment. It's very difficult to do my job of summarizing the podcast. So please, if you are a tennis player, stop the grunting. Stop the insanity, as uh, Susan Powder once said. And, uh, that's all we got. So long, everyone. In die Stöhnlaute von Sharapova, vor allem wenn es dann eng wird, kommt dann immer noch eine zusätzliche Note hinzu, indem sie...